Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. U.S. troops on the direct order of President Donald Trump will withdraw from Syria. Key reason, General James Mattis resigned as Secretary of Defense this week. Dr. Zudi Jasser joined me, former U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander. He had this to say. Truck convoys today in Alberta and Saskatchewan supporting the energy industry. I spoke with Kyle Benning, global news reporter in Alberta, about that, and Mark Schultz, the president of the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. Lori Ryan, the owner of Lorley Energy Services in Alberta, was one of the organizers of the 1,000-truck-long convoy in Nisku, Alberta, on Wednesday. Here's what Lori had to say about why that happened. British Columbians by a 61% majority voted to retain the first past the post electoral process in their referendum. Mike Smith, political columnist with the Vancouver province and CKNW radio talk show host, told me this. U.S. troops on the direct order, uh, President Donald Trump will withdraw from Syria. And we're told, and I've looked at some of the paragraphs from General James Mattis, resignation letter as Secretary of Defense this week, that that resignation has a lot to do with the president's decision concerning removing American troops from Syria and endangering American allies like the Kurds. Dr. Zudi Jasser, former U.S. Navy lieutenant commander, he's from Syria, still has family in the country. He's the president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, the author of A Battle for the Soul of Islam, and founder of uh, TakeBackIslam.com and co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement, joins us on this program quite regularly. Zudi, thank you so much for the time. And what do you make of uh, both uh, both uh, developments, the president's decision to remove American troops from Syria and uh, General Mattis' decision to resign as Secretary of Defense? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I'm a bit as confused as everybody uh, because on the one hand, let's, let's look at the reality. We barely had 2,000 troops there. Uh, they were simply defensive. There was no offense in Syria. It was special forces. And yet those 2,000 troops are one of the most successful special forces operations in history because it controlled with the Kurds 30% of Syria. So now they're going to be letting that go, and the Kurds are going to be vulnerable, number one, to the Turks, number two, to the Iranians and Hezbollah, and three, to the Assadists and uh, the Syrian regime. So it really doesn't make sense from an abandonment perspective. We're hearing that President Trump sort of jumped uh, from the hip to that conclusion during a telephone conversation with Erdogan. Now, General Mattis is a huge loss for many of us. But make no mistake, Mattis was not looking at regime change in Syria. He was against uh, uh, any expansion of the operation, against the hard line on Iran. So bottom line is, is this may simply be sort of he was, he was going to exit anyway, as was McGurk, as we heard today. So there's a lot of theater involved here. Bottom line is, is as somebody with family in Syria, as you said, having the adults out of the room, which is America, and our 
few allies, that would be at the French or others that were there, is going to be a major catastrophe as far as sort of letting Assad and Iran become completely, even more than they have been, unhinged as far as crimes against humanity in the region. Plus there's the concern, and I think a very legitimate concern, that ISIS will get back on its feet. There's no doubt. This, uh, you know, my podcast released today is uh, Jihad Zero, Jihadist One, America Zero, because to say that we defeated ISIS is just absurd. The ideology is still there. There are 30,000 ISIS devotees still within Syria. Uh, yes, they're much, much more on the run, thanks to Secretary Mattis and the operations that President Trump allowed to happen, as you and I talked about last year in the first half of 2017. They they took a losing operation and made it actually 98% victorious. But the ideology is greater than it's ever been. Syria is teeming with jihadists from not only ISIS, but al-Qaeda groups, Brotherhood groups, uh, Hezbollah, Shia Islamists uh, are teaming, Chechnya and Salafi jihadists. So to say that we have won and we have completed operations, uh, you know, the only person I can think that's whispering in the president's ear is Rand Paul. Uh, but other than Rand Paul and President Trump, I don't know who else thinks that we have uh, won the war against ISIS. It's, they've gone underground. Their command and control in Raqqa is done. But they are like a hydra and will continue to resurface in the region. And to think that you can get rid of ISIS in a short term and it's not going to come back. He, he tweeted out yesterday, President Trump, that, well, Assad and Turkey and uh, Russia will get rid of ISIS. They've never had an interest in ending ISIS. They used it as a foil to, to target moderates, to target the real enemies on the ground, which has been part of the ethnic cleansing process in Syria. They have absolutely no interest in ending the existence of ISIS, be it uh, Iran, uh, Assad, or Russia. Removing those 2,000 U.S. troops uh, and, and showing the flag, and as you said, they were also very effective militarily, is going to really create um, just a terrible situation for the Kurds and uh, other American allies, but it will also provide uh, Iran with a greater opportunity to be problematic toward uh, toward Israel and directly so. So, you know, let me tell you, let me punctuate this conversation with a utilitarian, which is often an unethical position, which is the ends justifies the means. I will tell you that it almost may be worthwhile to have us pull out those 2,000 troops. The only true victims initially are going to be the Kurds. But set aside the Kurdish issue, that place is going to implode and threaten Israel over the next year to the point there we will have to do something. So maintaining a defensive posture has presented, prevented a degeneration of that region. Once it degenerates, those of us who are more hawkish are going to say, you know what, now we have to really do an operation more offensive to prevent Iran and, and, and other players from uh, threatening Israel. And, you know, in some ways it might end up actually proving uh, to allow an operation that should have been done uh, a year ago. Is there, let me go back to the beginning of our conversation, is there uh, any chance, do you think, for President Trump, because I understand that the Turkish President Erdogan was quite surprised during the phone call, this is what I read anyway, that he was very surprised that President Trump in the middle of the call assured him that they would, uh, he would remove American troops. Is there any chance that after everything that's been going on over the last 48 hours, that President Trump may reverse his field? Who knows? Nothing. You can't put anything past uh, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, gymnastics that happen on a day-to-day -day basis in foreign policy by tweets. And I think that's why you're seeing some exit in the Pentagon and 
you know, I'm sure uh, National Security Advisor Bolton was not in favor of this. Uh, there's been some disagreement. Yeah. It seems that many folks have been in disagreement with this. Um, even Erdogan, who is elated probably at seeing America leave, was not ready to say that he's uh, going to have troops uh, into Syria. So I, I really don't know the answer to that. All I know is that uh, President Trump's little video about leaving Syria, we had already left. Those 2,000 troops were not. I don't think anyone who is reasonable thought that that was a part of an American force. It's the Afghanistan departure that's pretty significant, actually, and uh, is a whole other conversation, and Taliban will regenerate itself. That is a major departure that even President Obama did not do. Uh, but this is actually worse than many of the criticisms that we conservatives gave Obama on how he lost the peace. Uh, President Trump is simply dotting the I's and crossing the T's on complete withdrawal from those regions. Zudi, I thank you very much for the time. Uh, we'll see what happens over the short term. And over the longer term, who knows, as you said, it may prove to be uh, a situation that becomes so untenable that there is uh, a very strong response militarily and, and, and otherwise. Thanks for the time, always. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Roy. Bye-bye. Dr. Zudi Jasser. He's the author of Battle for the Soul of Islam and the president and founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy and former United States Navy lieutenant commander. Just looking at a poll, we're going to be talking to um, uh, Germain Belzile, the senior associate researcher with the Montreal Economic Institute in just a moment. just want to share some numbers with you. You've heard about the poll that was done of Quebecers about where they prefer their oil to come from and how they prefer their oil to arrive. And uh, just here's one question that was asked. In your opinion, is it preferable for the oil imported from outside Quebec to come from Western Canada, the United States, Algeria, Nigeria, the Middle East, another country, or do not know? Uh, Western Canada, number one, 66%. The United States way, way down in second place at 7%. Algeria, 3%. Nigeria, 1%. The Middle East, 1%. And the DNK, or did not know, or a refusal, 20%. But 66% prefer their oil to come from Western Canada. This is Quebecers now. So remember what the Prime Minister said. He says there's no paraphrasing. There's no real interest, let me use that word, in uh, pipelines in Quebec. So Quebecers also asked, in your opinion, which of the following means is the safest to transport oil, 45% pipelines, 14% tanker trucks, 13% trains, 9% tankers, that's in ships. And uh, currently Quebec must import from Western Canada or abroad all of its oil it consumes, in your opinion, is it preferable for Quebec to exploit its own oil resources or for it to continue to be importing 100% of its oil uh, for consumption outside Quebec. 53% believe that it would be better to exploit Quebec's own oil resources. So let's uh, say hello to and appreciate him taking the time. I think he may have delayed his vacation, his Christmas vacation, to join us. Germain Belzile is the senior associate researcher for the Montreal Economic Institute. Monsieur Belzile, thank you for the time. Thank you very much for having me. Now, it's interesting to me that the timing of this particular poll is interesting, given everything that's happened leading up to today. Uh, was there a specific reason why the poll was done now? I think we were very fortunate. Uh, that's why we, get, we were getting so much um, uh, great coverage. Uh, we do a poll on uh, energy, oil, uh, and uh, within, within Quebec, 
every year in November. So uh, we ask more or less the same questions we uh, usually ask, but we've got, let's say, a tremendous uh, response this year from, from the media and from politicians also. So, um, in, in fact, there's no particular reason why we did it. We've been doing it for a few years now. Now, it's critically important at this particular time. I mean, the circumstances are such that your poll, your timing of your poll, was absolutely perfect. But did you, since you do it annually, did you have any expectations of what you would hear going into the polling? And were those expectations, if you had any, met? Uh, we did, because we've been polling the same questions uh, for a few years. Last year, for example, it was 65% of the uh, population who thought we should import oil from, uh, uh, get our oil from uh, Western Canada, and 66% this year. So it's within the margin of error. So, uh, in fact, uh, it's remarkably stable, uh, and it's been that way for, for a few years now. So uh, we're not surprised at all. But I think most people are surprised. Well, because the the, the, the feeling has been that Quebecers, and maybe it had to do with what Monsieur Coderre said when he was the, the mayor of Montreal and represented some, I think it was 83 mayors in the area, and what Premier Legault has said most recently about dirty oil from Alberta and pipelines. So the, consen- the, so the feeling was, I shouldn't say the consensus, but the feeling might have been the Quebecers had little or no time or interest in oil from Western Canada. That clearly is not the case. And outside of saying Quebecers would prefer to um, harvest their own resources, their preference is Western Canada. Oh, absolutely. And um, in fact, and it's clear that there's a, a big disconnect between uh, the political class um, and uh, the uh, celebrities and uh, elites, let's say, from Quebec and uh, the silent majority. Um, uh, the silent majority uh, clearly understands that uh, uh, all Canadians benefit from uh, producing uh, oil. Uh, uh, we get, uh, in fact, a large part of the uh, um, equalization payments we get every year uh, probably come from uh, the fact that Western Canada is, uh, is very prosperous uh, because, of, because of oil. So I think that, Can- that Quebecers understand that very well, and uh, they'd rather uh, buy their uh, oil from fellow Canadians than from, uh, from uh, abroad. Uh, so it's a uh, it's, it's a little sad because um, uh, some politicians have tried to, uh, tried over the years to uh, to gain uh, let's say some votes uh, with the uh, environmentalists or the environmentalist uh, environmentalist minded people uh, through these uh, types of declarations, but it's very very far from what uh, people uh, people believe and, and and think. Well, you know, I won't ask you to say it, but I'll use the word they're lying if they if they're suggesting. That Quebecers, if if they're even if they're insinuating that Quebecers uh, want nothing to do with Western Canadian oil or pipelines, they're just not telling the truth. And the, and your poll proves that. Not only the poll from this November, but last November and before that. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, in, uh, we um, we also polled um, Quebecers uh, in the same poll on um, uh, on other questions. Uh, among them. Um, uh, would they would be willing to pay a car for a carbon tax, and we uh, we they, our, our results were so interesting that we uh, uh, we published them last week um, uh, separately, but they were from the same poll. Uh, when we asked Quebecers if they were for or against uh, um, uh, combating uh, GHG emissions, um, 76% of Quebecers said yes. When they were asked after that, uh, are you willing to pay for that? Only 40% were willing to pay. 
And when we went into uh, more specific details, we asked them, are you willing to pay a five cent uh, carbon tax on your gasoline, which is more or less what they pay right now with the um, uh, the, current, the current market we have in Quebec, uh, and you had in Ontario also uh, until recently, um, well, only uh, 30, uh, 32% of the population was willing to pay that. And it goes down very rapidly. At 10 cents, I believe it's 16% of the people who are willing to pay that. And at amounts uh, that are uh, probably necessary to um, curb um, consumption of, uh, of oil, well, uh, so 40 or 50 cents per, per liter, and that's not my number. It's, uh, uh, it's pretty well, uh, pretty good consensus among the scientists. Well, uh, only 2% of the population is willing to pay these amounts. So my guess is that um, uh, politicians understand very well that they cannot increase carbon taxes. So they're, they're, they're left with one way of, uh, let's say, um, uh, increasing their uh, environmentalist creds, and that's um, uh, declarations, such as we don't want your dirty oil, and uh, we will uh, 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 will, uh, not give uh, any um, uh, permits to drill in Quebec, etc., etc., because that doesn't touch most people in their everyday lives. So it's an easy way to get... uh, uh, a reputation of being green, but uh, uh, but uh, yeah, they're not they're not uh, speaking for Quebecers when they when they say that. So, so as we used to say, they're speaking out of all three sides of their mouths at the same time, as it were. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> you said it. <laughs> I, I said it. I, I I'll take credit for it. Now, but to go back to what you just said, seventy six percent of Quebecers say they are in favor of reducing greenhouse gases. Seventy six percent, right? That's right. 40% are willing to pay to do that. Yeah. And then 32% are willing to pay five cents a liter carbon tax. Just that, just about it, yeah. Right. And then it goes and, down uh, to then it goes down to 16% of Quebecers would support a carbon tax on fuel if it were 10 cents a liter. Yeah. And then and then the numbers continue to uh, descend as far as people who are willing to pay is concerned as the carbon tax numbers rise. Oh, exactly. And at and significant uh, um, uh, taxes on, on, on gasoline, uh, above 30 cents, for example, there's practically no one left. And I suspect that the people who say that they would be willing to pay that tax probably don't own a car and don't drive a car either, and don't expect to drive one in, in, in the future. Now, it's easy to make the statement that you're willing to pay a carbon tax for gasoline if you don't drive. Yeah. Exactly, but they probably don't understand that if there's a high carbon tax, they'll be paying more for everything they buy. In everything, that. that's yeah. right. And and as far as pipelines are concerned, 45% of Quebecers, the question was, in your opinion, which of the following means is the safest to transport oil? 45% said pipelines. That's the same number as you had in April. And then tra- tanker trucks was next at 14%. Trains at thirteen percent. Many people probably remember Lac Megantic, and then the tankers, and then nineteen percent didn't know. Yeah, um, well, the nineteen percent would probably uh, wish that uh, someone could say, uh, uh, "Beam me some oil down, Scotty," and uh, <laughs> uh, that's it. But, uh, um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, we've had Lac Megantic, so it, it's even uh, surprising that thirteen uh, percent of the population yeah. would wish uh, 
us to uh, transport our uh, oil uh, by train. But um, but we've had this big accident in Lake Megantic, but uh, over the years we've had um, uh, accidents uh, involving trucks also, uh, tanker trucks, and uh, they've killed a few people uh, in, the, in the province. So I think that people are pretty, uh, they understand pretty well that it's the by far the safest way of transporting uh, oil. Now, we did not poll people about uh, their attitudes towards uh, new pipelines. There maybe we'd, we'd have lower numbers, especially if the uh, not in my backyard syndrome um, appears, and that's certainly possible. But I believe that this the, this poll um, tells us that uh, Quebecers would certainly be open to uh, to pipelines, especially if they're built uh, far away from um, um, highly densely um, uh, or, or high density living population areas. Yeah, it just makes sense, doesn't it? When you're 45 percent saying that they believe that pipelines are the safest way to transport oil, and then you've got to have 66% saying they prefer their oil from Western Canada, I would extrapolate from those two particular numbers that you would probably get a positive response to pipelines, to new pipelines, like maybe Energy East, being uh, completed and done so, as you say, uh, distant from population centers and uh, with a proven safety record. It, it just doesn't seem like that much of a leap to assume the Quebecers would be in favor of Energy East under those circumstances. And I believe so. And I believe that, uh, however, that there's a, an important uh, education job to be done about um, the pros and cons, uh, and especially the, the um, uh, let's say, the advantages uh, of pipelines. Um, um, many, uh, in fact, the, the, the Greens have been, have been uh, left uh, to do their propaganda uh, without any, with, with very little response from uh, from the industry over the years. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I believe that if it's done correctly, uh, there there would be uh, a positive attitude towards uh, new pipelines. And by the way, um, this wasn't mentioned in in the poll, but uh, uh, presently, uh, at the end of twenty eighteen, uh, we get fifty three percent of our, our oil in Quebec from Western Canada, and about forty percent from um, from the United States. So. Um, People, uh, in fact, we're getting uh, most of our oil or a majority of our oil from Western Canada, and the 66% tells us that people are okay with that. Okay. Monsieur Belzile, thank you. Merci. Appreciate the time. Have a wonderful Christmas and all the best for 2019. Well, thank you very much, and um, uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year to all your um, listeners. Thank you. All the best. Germain Belzile from uh, the Montreal Economic Institute, Senior Associate Researcher. Mercedes Stevenson, who is just a terrific interviewer with Global News and the host of the West Block, um, she, she's <laughs> remarkable, does not shy away from questions, does not shy away from being critical, is a very good reporter. She had a year-end interview with Prime Minister Trudeau, and part of the conversation had to do with East-West pipelines. Now, keep in mind what you just heard from the Montreal Economic Institute, and listen. Would you consider championing championing a, a west-east pipeline? It doesn't have to be energy east, but any pipeline that might go through Quebec. Well, if there's going to be uh, such a proposal, it has to come forward from the private sector. It has to come forward as uh, a real uh, a real approach. We right now there is no project on the table, and uh, we will you know look at any project that comes forward and allow it to go through the proper processes. Why wouldn't you consider reviving energy east? 
it's not up to the federal government to revive uh, a pipeline project that for uh, market-based reasons the company uh, decided to withdraw. But the federal government did say, did it not, Mr. Trudeau? Didn't the words come out of your mouth that there was no interest in Quebec for a pipeline? And didn't the premier of Quebec say something about dirty oil from Alberta? You didn't counter him in any way. And when you have that attitude from the federal government, it's difficult for private industry to say, well, we're going to move forward particularly on something that might be as contentious in some areas as pipelines, because we don't have the government support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Kyle Benning, global news reporter. He's in Alberta. And Kyle, I believe, by the way, we've been retweeting some of your tweets. Are you in Medicine Hat? Where are you exactly? That's right, Roy. I'm in Medicine Hat, uh, just by the bridge, by the south, going over the South Saskatchewan River. Uh, hundreds of trucks going by and uh, taking their time going up uh, Highway 1 here through Medicine Hat. And I'll tell you, it's quite a sight. You mentioned uh, lots of sounds and sights and stuff like that, but uh, I'm not sure if you're able to hear it, but quite a bit of honking going on right now. Must make the ground shake. Definitely, yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of ground shaking, a lot of uh, air horns, and uh, actually the wind right now has been picking up, so I know there's been a, a lot of issues with that as well, but uh, plenty of people here in support, obviously. Uh, uh, Medicine Hat, a, a big hub for the energy sector, lots of uh, companies set up here, and actually a, a Yellow Vest rally getting ready to go pretty shortly here as well. So the emotional response, the all the emotion that's being expended today must be huge. It is. It is. Uh, we've spoken with a few people who are taking part in the rally, they really want to keep the pressure on the uh, Trudeau Liberals and the province here as well, uh, following up on the uh, the convoy that took place just south of Edmonton earlier this week. So, Kyle, what particularly is kind of catching your attention? As you're watching this, and you've been there all, all day, what's really caught your attention? I know that it must be, you know, just seeing all these trucks would have to be the, the, the first thing that really grabs your attention. But what else has gotten you, you know, sort of uh, got you paying attention? I think one thing that really caught my eyes when we spoke with an individual earlier today before the convoy started, uh, he's a former oil worker, he's now a teacher, but just the fact uh, that camaraderie and the fact that uh, Albertans who don't even work in the energy sector are behind energy workers here, uh, just the uh, the camaraderie and that, that support that most Albertans have for this sector is uh, is really, really showing uh, quite strongly here, and uh, they're, it seems like they're going to hold uh, Mr. Trudeau quite accountable uh, on, on the carbon tax and on building the pipeline. And what's uh, in store for you for the rest of the day? 
so we're going to follow up with this and uh, sort of keep our eye on this uh, convoy for the uh, rest of the afternoon. Uh, obviously try and check in on that uh, Yellow Vest rally, as I mentioned, that's uh, taking place a little bit later this afternoon. There are also some other rallies taking, across, uh, taking place across the province, uh, one in Brooks, one near Edmonton as well. Uh, so just sort of uh, gauging the feeling of Albertans when it comes to uh, their feelings towards the energy sector and trying to uh, get Canada's oil to foreign markets. Well, you're doing a great job. As I said, on Twitter, I've just been following you and retweeted a couple of your tweets, and you're getting the sense out to the rest of us in the country about what's going on in Alberta. And thanks so much for the time, Kyle. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again. Sounds good. My pleasure, Roy. Kyle Benning from Global News. He's in Medicine Hat and uh, describing what's going on with the convoy that's uh, going there in other parts of the province as well. And in Estevan and Saskatchewan, there was a convoy that was scheduled to begin at 11.30 local time. Mark Schultz is with us, the president of the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. We've spoken with Mr. Schultz on this program in the past. Mark, it's great to have you back. I wish it was under different circumstances, but given what's going on, it's critically important, I think, for people in the oil patch, people in the energy sector in Alberta, and in Saskatchewan to stand up and say, pay attention to us. Well, Merry Christmas, uh, Roy, to you and your listeners. Thank you, sir. Uh, certainly uh, some difficult times uh, were faced uh, out west here, but nonetheless, one of the things that as Western Canadians we pride of is we, uh, when we, we try to get attention from the federal government, uh, we, uh, we, we get the, the chorus going as loud as we can, and we've done this before uh, back in the 80s when... We had a different Trudeau in office and certainly had some difficulties with uh, both market access, but, you know, damaging public policy to our energy industry. But I think what you're starting to see um, right across Western Canada, and I think the country, is enough is enough. We need to start seeing some leadership at the federal level. That's the only, really the only true level of government that can provide uh, what we're looking for, which is market access to our responsible energy products. I mean, we have seen over the last couple months uh, some certainly some band-aid solutions presented by the federal government. Nobody really out west has been asking for, uh, you know, bailouts or handouts from the government. What we've been looking for is the ability to compete on a global scale, uh, a global stage, uh, and, uh, and and we can do that. I mean, we have all the right resources in, uh, in, in front of us. We have the right talent, uh, the equipment, the most advanced technology in the world, and and the resources to uh, to add to that. And so, uh, what we're looking for is market access. And unfortunately, um, we've seen delay after delay. Three pipelines uh, effectively cancelled or delayed, and uh, we need to see some action. And Mark, it's uh, it's it's evident where the resistance is coming from to the pipelines, and it's evident where the resistance is coming from to getting the product to international marketplaces that want our product, our Canadian product. As you say, we have the world's best professionals, and we have one marketplace, and that marketplace is receiving our oil at such a tremendous discount. The TD Bank told us it was $107 or $117 billion that were lost to the Canadian economy over a period of 10 years, and that's just unacceptable. What is life like for your members? How tenuous are things for members of your association, the oil well drillers? Well, I would say it's it, it's very uh, it, we're in a very precarious uh, situation uh, in most cases, uh, at least for sure on the service sector side. That 
uh, you know, the, on the blue collar, the, those that are actually employed to carry out the execution of capital projects, uh, drilling new wells, et cetera, are bringing um, uh, less productive ones up to higher capacity. The service sector has been just completely decimated over the past four years. We've seen about 150, 180,000 Albertans uh, out of work. Uh, we've seen hundreds of businesses close their doors. Um, what we're starting to see now is the companies that are viable are relocating out of the country. Um, we've seen, at least in our membership, we've seen the most advanced, the most sophisticated drilling equipment leave Canada for destinations of the United States and other international uh, jurisdictions. Um, these are Canadian companies, um, that w- of which their ownership would love to operate and continue to operate in Canada. Uh, but uh, from a business perspective, they just we we can't we can't do that in this market. And so we're seeing an exodus of people, uh, businesses if they don't go under. And so yeah, the picture out here is uh, is not very good. Um, and you, I mean, you talk about the discount. I mean, we've seen some discounts uh, upwards of uh, forty-five, fifty dollars in some cases, um, which is a shame because of the pride that uh, that we take in in producing this responsible product. And no, there's no reason really for this to be going on. This is the bigger, the, the larger this to be going on. We have a product that the world wants. We're blessed to have a product the world wants. We have an economy that, you know, people will argue that our economy is doing well. Well, and jobs and employment uh, numbers are good, but uh, pay is down. And I've talked to people who have, you know, they have a job, but they have three jobs, two or three jobs, and they're working at minimum wage. So this, what's going on in, in Western Canada, what's going on in the energy sector is reaching out and touching everybody eventually. And if some of our most skilled people and some of the best equipment that we have is leaving this country, there are long-term implications there as well. This is just being very badly mismanaged. So, you, so if you're in, if you're in the, if you have an opportunity to speak, Mark, if you had an opportunity to say something to the Prime Minister of Canada, what's the message for him? Well, I think a few things. One is, I, I think at the end of the day, we have to look at what's the strategy, what's the vision for our country at a very high level. Um, does Canada want to play a role in the oil and gas industry? And I think that really we're actually at that fundamental question today because the reality is our, our industry is experiencing its existential crisis. Uh, and so I, I think what we would like to hear from the Prime Minister is a very clear, unequivocal support for our industry that he believes uh, in seeing it expand. Uh, secondly, uh, that he gets behind our world-class regulatory systems. Um, what we're seeing right now is completely irresponsible from the fe- from the federal government's uh, standpoint to say anything other than our current regular uh, regulatory regime is the best in the world. It's modeled internationally. Uh, the National Energy Board, as well as the Alberta Energy Regulator, are modeled right around the world as how you go about developing uh, resources responsibly and sustainably. And so when we hear the federal government come and say Canadians have no trust, no confidence in our regulatory environment, I think that's, that's just completely uh, untrue and irresponsible of the federal government to throw our, our key regulators under the bus um, who are well-known uh, internationally for the work that they do. Second, or I guess thirdly, I guess I would say is, you know, the, the Prime Minister talks an awful lot about 
you know, the environment and the economy going hand in hand. And I don't, I don't think anyone can disagree that we want to make sure we, we produce our, our resources responsibly and, uh, and to the highest standard environmentally. But we really are faced with a binary decision here. Uh, it's literally whether you want to get your product, oil and gas, from a pipe, pipeline versus rail. You can get your product from Canada or you can get it from foreign, uh, foreign countries. You can get your product through foreign tankers or you can get your product through Canadian pipelines. And that's the reality we're faced with. We have a, 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 our domestic needs for energy continue to increase. The world needs more and more energy resources. And so Canada needs to come to the plate uh, with strong leadership, uh, get pipelines uh, to the west and east that we can provide both international, uh, the international community with our responsible energy products, but also domestically. And I'm glad you talked a little bit about that poll that came out from Quebec, mm-hmm. where some 60% would rather consume Canadian energy products. Yeah, 66, and that 66%. That, and that makes sense. And, and when I speak out in Quebec and Ontario, and we've traveled extensively across Canada talking about our energy products. Um, Regular Canadians get it. Um, They're there. And I think what we need is we need to have pressure from Eastern Central Canadians, get involved in this conversation, talk to your member of parliament, and say, look, as a Canadian, I'm outraged, and we have to get our resources to market. And these are Canadian resources; these aren't these aren't Alberta resources or Saskatchewan resources. This this belongs to the people of Canada. Yes, and, sir. You know, we we have to work together as as a country because otherwise, what we're faced with right now is is a very immature conversation where we have sovereign provinces dictating what national policy should be. Yeah. Mark, and we I th- just can't have that. Mark, I like the word immature. That's such a that's such a such a perfect word. It's an immature conversation that we've been having and I not you and I, but you know, the uh, what's been coming out of our nation's capital. Mark, thank you so much for the time. Wish you the very best and uh, there's tremendous support in eastern Canada for the oil industry, for the uh, for the energy sector because we all realize in Canada first of all they're all professionals. It's being done extremely professionally and handled appropriately. And, uh, and it's necessary to our well-being, our national well-being, and to the economy of Canada. Thanks so much, Mark. All the best to you. Yeah, you as well. Mark Schultz, president of the um, Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors. Lori Ryan is uh, the owner of Lorley Energy. In, uh, in Alberta, Lordly Energy Services, he was an organizer of the 1,000-truck-long convoy in Nisku earlier this week. Lori, thanks for taking the time, and for the benefit of the rest of the country, how bad are things for the truckers who participated in your convoy on Wednesday and are out again today? Well, basically, Roy, if you, if you think about it, you know, the equipment that was on the road, which would be last Sunday in Grand Prairie, Wednesday in, uh, in Nisku, Leduc area, uh, the equipment that's on the road down in Brooks, Alberta, and in Saskatchewan and Estevan, uh, that equipment should all be working. It should be out in the field working and creating uh, revenue and uh, and employees working and so on and so forth. So if you think about how much equipment that is, that's substantial in our industry. Yeah. There are, these are massive statements to Ottawa. What does Mr. Trudeau have to understand? Well... 
You know, obviously our, our statement is, is that we have issues and, and what's tentatively looking like we're going into with Bill C-48 and 69 there is not looking like it's going to do any anything to uh, help the industry. So, you know, the message is, is that we're highly concerned, you know, especially in Western Canada and, you know, we're getting great feedback from across the country that, you know, we're being supported in, in the same message as a whole right so you know and really it's it's more of a message just to to the politicians in ottawa it's a message to the entire country and all the people of the of the country as a whole at okay. the end of the day laurie thank you for the time i'm going to be talking to some of the truckers who are in the convoys and i thank you for talking to me today sir real good laurie ryan ken is in edson alberta how are you ken yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm in this cotton boy, and it's pretty noisy and pretty slow. Well, I can hear the noise. Yeah. I've I never seen anything like it before in my life here in Edson. What are you seeing? Describe to us what's going on. Uh, there's, uh, the convoy takes up kind of two lanes, and it's, uh, we're going about three kilometers an hour, and uh, it's just uh, very active with uh, everybody that wants to support the pipeline in Alberta. Hey, hey, Ken, Ken, can you get, can you get them to pipe down for a minute? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to close my window. Yeah, why don't you close your window? That might be a little bit better. We need to hear you. Yeah, there uh, you go. I was only joking yeah. about getting them to pipe down, but the, yeah, I, I've been I've been in the oil patch for um, forty-three years, I believe, and I never seen nothing like this. We've been pipeline starved in Alberta for for just about fifteen or twenty years, uh, and we we need a pipeline to get our product to the market because I'd hate to own a uh, oil company and be told. I got to take 10%, uh, dock 10% off my uh, my production because I'm in business to make money and, uh, you know, drill and, and sell a product, and we, we just can't sell it because we don't have the pipelines. Yeah. How, how difficult are things for you personally? Well, it's, uh, you know, I've been doing the same job for over 40 years now, and, and it's, uh, it's slowed down considerably. Uh, we just finished up one drilling rig here about um, three or four days ago. They got six rigs. They laid three off. And then every rig individually is uh, employs 130 people directly or indirectly, the people that build the leases, the people that uh, survey the leases, the people that work on the drilling rig. That's, it's just uh, lots of people out of work, and I'm I'm uh, from the older generation. I have most of my stuff paid for. I feel bad for the younger ones that jumped into the oil field because you got to ride the highs and the right ride the lows, and the lows are aren't good. Yeah. Years ago, we spring breakup lasted till the end of March. Rigs are racking already here in December, and a couple of years ago they racked uh, halfway through January. Ken, January, February, March is usually the busiest time. Ken, I thank you for the call. Thanks for joining us. The message that you're sending to Ottawa and to the politicians across the country is unmistakable. All the best to you, my friend. Yeah, and that's from Ed.
Edson, Alberta, Canada. Edson, uh, Edson, Alberta, Canada. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. There's Ken in uh, in Edson, Alberta. Daryl Shirley is uh, uh, a trucker or was active in organizing the convoy in Estevan, Saskatchewan. Daryl's joining us on uh, the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Daryl, thank you for taking the time. Hello. So you you or you operate a transport company in Saskatchewan? Yeah, uh, we have a family-owned transport company. is run by my me and my two brothers. Right. Yes. So how tough are things for you guys, and why was it important? I'm sorry to have to ask this question because the answer should be obvious, but let me ask you anyway. Why was it important to get involved in organizing the, the convoy in Saskatchewan? Well, it is very tough for us right now. It's, we are primarily, our main business is the oil industry, oil patch. We are a contract carrier for uh, all oil fuel equipment. Uh, why is it important to organize a convoy? Basically, we want people to know that we, it's just not affecting one place. We put this uh, this convoy that we put together, this little protest, came in less than 48 hours from the first time that we thought about it till conception. But it is all walks of life down in this area of the woods or in Canada are being affected by, uh, I guess, lack of support from, from the higher-ups. So we just want to basically... Let people know that we are here, that we are fighting for our, for our world, and uh, hopefully the government listens. Well, I hope so, too, because the message, that, again, that you're sending is unmistakable. And to go from having an idea to do this and to actually get it underway and on the road in 48 hours is remarkable. How many trucks would you say are out there? Well, the trucks that are actually in the convoy here, we... Estevan, Saskatchewan is a community of about 12,000 people. Right. And uh, we had over 427 trucks show up. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's, you know, for 12,000 people community, 400, over almost 500 trucks, that's a message in and of itself. Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time, sir. And uh, you weren't aware that in Quebec, the polling shows that 66% of Quebecers are in favor of Western oil coming into Quebec and uh, 45%, that's the, the, by far the largest percentage in the province, are in favor of pipelines. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's this a poll that was just, just released. Yeah, this is not just a uh, Western uh, issue. This is a national issue. This is a national issue. Thank you, Daryl Shirley, one of the organizers of the Estevan Convoy. I want to get back to Lori Ryan for, because we only had about 90 seconds. I want to spend a few more minutes with Lori. Uh, the owner of Lorley Energy Services Limited, organizer, one of the organizers of the Thousand Truck Convoy in Nisku uh, earlier this week on Wednesday. Lori, as you're looking around uh, or and listening today, and, and, and you know all of the convoys that are that have started up and are and are crossing through Alberta and Saskatchewan, this is a, a huge message and one that no politician, no politician can afford to ignore. Go ahead, Laurie. Definitely, uh, definitely a big movement by the industry and in, in trying to show 
show uh, obviously government and the rest of the country of you know what's going on type thing and as as long as we can get that message out and continue it right through 2019 to election time i think that's what our goal is here moving forward yeah and what's the conversation like within the within the patch uh right now given what's happened since wednesday i mean but there must there must there must be a, a real emotional lift for everybody there was this kind of response. You know, we just had uh, Daryl Shirley tell us that in Estevan, they went from having the idea for a convoy to getting almost 500 trucks on the road in just 48 hours. That's huge response. Uh, I think it just goes to show you uh, basically what's going on as a whole and and how how much it impacts everyday life in Western Canada uh, for the people and the families that are involved daily with that, with that uh, industry making a living, I, it it speaks volumes itself, and and the continued support of these individual convoys throughout Western Canada is 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 evidence of what's going on. Yeah, and it's necessary that it's not just the convoys that are on the road, but that the message that is being sent by everybody in these convoys is heard and understood and properly responded to. That's what's critical. Well, there's no question there. You know, everyone wants to get some type of an answer from Ottawa or, you know, your local government in your province, uh, you know, whether it be Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, British Columbia, whatever have you there. I think at the end of the day there, as long as we get the message out to the people and we understand all as a nation of how important this industry is, I think that's going to be at the end of the day, the, the real message. And when we go to the polls in, uh, in the fall of 2019, hopefully that's where all these efforts really stand up and show mm-hmm. uh, it's how, how effective it's been at the end of the day. Yeah. Laurie, thank you very much for the time. Time is finite as far as this issue is concerned as well. Laurie Ryan joining us from Laura Lee um, Energy Services Limited in Alberta. Mercedes Stevenson in her year-end conversation, Global News, year-end conversation with Prime Minister Trudeau, brought up Trans Mountain Pipeline and Energy East. Listen. In terms of going forward, you are, of course, running Trans Mountain. It goes through British Columbia. British Columbians say, when Quebec said they didn't want a pipeline, they didn't get a pipeline. When we said we don't want a pipeline, we're having one bought by the federal government forced down our throat. What do you say to British Columbians? Uh, actually, the British Columbian government uh, under Christy Clark was supportive of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, there was a change in government, and the government was opposed, but there are also a lot of folks in B.C., including Indigenous communities, who understand that it is important for us to get our resources to new markets other than the United States. The fact that Alberta oil... Uh, can only export to one customer means uh, there are you know, billions, tens of billions of dollars of discount that we uh, don't have to spend on hospitals, schools, uh, and a, a vast array of important investments across this country. Getting our resources to new markets safely and securely in a way that protects the environment, in a way that reaches our climate change goals, is something uh, that we're committed to doing, and we're going to do it the right way. Just annoying. He's just annoying. Sorry, I'm not. Just listen. Mike Smith, he's my colleague at uh, Chorus Radio at CKNW in Vancouver, also political columnist 
and one of the very best in the country for the Vancouver province. So, Mike, 61%, 61% voted for first past the post. That's an emphatic statement. Yeah, it really is, Roy. And uh, if there was any surprise here, maybe wasn't that the no side won this referendum and British Columbia is going to stick with the first-past-the-post system. But I think it was the margin of victory, uh, 61%. Yeah, the voters spoke very loudly. They didn't want to go down this road of proportional representation, even though the governing NDP, uh, supported by the Green Party, we got a minority government here, they campaigned hard for it, and the people just weren't going for it. They... uh, uh, and emphatically said no to it. Why primarily do you think it happened this way? Why such a, why again, such an emphatic statement? I think there's a few reasons. I think for the main one is I don't think voters were upset enough with the current system. We haven't had any really badly distorted election results for a while in British Columbia. Um, So I think a lot of people were looking at this and saying, what is wrong with the system we got? I mean, you know, there didn't seem to be any urgency to fix it. I also think that voters, they kind of smelled a rat. You know, like the NDP government and their, their governing partners in the Green Party, they set the bar as low as it could be possibly set for this referendum to pass. They required only a bare majority, 50% plus one. We had two earlier referendums on the same thing, and the, the requirement was 60% to pass. They lowered it to 50 there was no regional supermajority required like we had in previous referendums, no minimum turnout. Uh, they didn't produce any electoral maps to show where people would, which ridings people would be voting in, how many MLAs they would have. So uh, John Horgan, the premier, called it a leap of faith. Just take a leap of faith. We'll explain it all to you later. I don't think people were buying it, Roy. They didn't want to take the leap. That's a tough sell with politicians anywhere in the country on any issue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like uh, going on to a used car lot and the salesman says, uh, I'll sell you a great car, just signing the dotted line here. And you say, well, let me, let me take it for a test drive first. Let me see the car. Oh, no, no, just buy it first and we'll, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll give you a great car later. I think a lot of people are saying, come on, you know, I, I just weren't going to buy it. Uh, you know, they had the, the NDP and the Green Party had their usual kind of suspects uh, lined up to support this thing. But if you take a look at the other side, the no side, uh, they brought out a, a, a couple of former NDP premiers to on the no side. They had Ujjal Desange uh, campaigning for the no side. Uh, Glenn Clark, another former NDP premier, was also opposed to proportional representation. I think the, uh, th- they just ran a better campaign than the other guys. Hey, Mike, what's the impact now on the NDP Green Party alliance? That's a really good question, Roy, because the... The way that they structured this referendum was if it had passed, if, we, if the proportional representation side had won, it would not be implemented until 2021. And that was kind of a guarantee for the Green Party to continue to prop up this government. The Green Party wanted that proportional representation system bad because they would have elected a lot more politicians if they had got it. Now it's off the table. I think it raises the chances of possibly a snap election in British Columbia in 2019. Might not happen, but I think the odds of it have gone up. So I, I wrote a little, I uh, wrote three words here as you were talking, and it was beauty of referenda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's direct democracy, isn't it? Yes, so, it is. Um, at the very least, some people are saying this was a waste of money. I mean, this thing cost probably around $14 million to run this referendum, and some people are saying, why did we go around this mulberry bush again? We already kind of got the same result as we did many years ago last time we did it. 
but on the other hand, people had an opportunity to have their say, and and, the, and it was direct. People had a direct uh, decision, and it probably puts it off the table for many many years to come. We probably won't be doing this again for quite some time. Yeah, I suspect so, Mike. I I envy British Columbians their opportunity. It's somewhat restricted, but still the opportunity to have hold referenda. Uh, the rest of the country, we just go along until election time. We, we have an initiative process here where people can put a referendum on the table if they get enough votes to support it. That's why we got rid of the right. harmonized sales tax a few years ago through right. a direct referendum in British Columbia. It's a very unique law in the country. Always good talking to you, my friend. Thank you for the time. Thank you, Roy. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio on The Roy Green Show. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.